The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by Dr. Dennis Johnson. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Join your hearts with mine in prayer. Father, we have professed, we have confessed, we have sung with glad hearts that Jesus is our only trust, that your righteousness, your faithfulness, uh, your mercy extended to us through your beloved Son who became our human brother, who obeyed when we have not, who suffered the penalty, the wrath that our disobedient deserves, who was raised from the dead, that he alone is our hope. Father, write those truths deeper into the depths of our hearts, we pray, in this semester as we explore your word in these devotions, but also in the class, in the classroom, in our conversations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As you saw in the morning morning devotion schedule, uh, I have six opportunities to open God's Word to you this semester, and uh, we're going to focus on the epistle to the Galatians. Ordinarily, I'll read a text from Galatians, but this first meditation, uh, I'm going to be picking and choosing from various parts of Paul's epistle, so I'm not going to read to begin with. Uh, I thought of Galatians, sort of a theme, Galatians, the Reformation, and you, I'll tip my hand, because this is a big year in the history of Reformed and Protestant Christianity, 2017, 500th anniversary of uh, at least the beginnings with Martin Luther on October 31st, 1517, nailing 95 propositions for debate, 95 theses on uh, the bulletin board, I mean the chapel door in Wittenberg, right? Let's discuss this. And... um, As it turns out, October 31st, 2017, falls on one of my Tuesdays. How's that for great? Uh, I should bribe the dean. Oh, I guess I did bribe the dean. No, I just pled with the dean of students for that date. So so we're going to look at Galatians. Uh, I I learned from uh, our president emeritus earlier this year, as he was still president, that uh, what Luther was doing in January 1517 was lecturing on Galatians to seminary students. Uh, Luther would later say that he didn't really get Galatians at that point, uh, and his commentary certainly has a much more mature understanding of Paul's, uh, the revelation given to Paul uh, to expound to the amazing grace of God in Christ, that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But Luther certainly came to love this letter to the Galatians. In fact, his table talk records that at the dinner table, he said this about Galatians. The epistle to the Galatians is my own epistle. I have betrothed myself to it. It is my Katie von Bora. That's the former nun who is Luther's, became Luther's wife. That's high praise to compare this letter with the, with the romantic love of his life. Now, the Reformation was about several important life-impacting questions. It certainly had to do with this issue that we often sum up in the Latin term sola scriptura, scripture alone. Does the Bible, the written word of God, get to tell the church what to think and teach, even to reform the church? 
or as the opponents of the Reformation contended, do the church and its traditions and its leaders define what the Bible is permitted to say? That's an issue that's not so much right on the surface of Galatians, but we'll see it in these devotions. Um, But more centrally to what Paul's dealing with here, can we know that we are right with God? Can we have assurance that God views us with a smile of welcome, not with a frown of disapproval or a cold shoulder of rejection? If we can now, how can we receive his approval? And those who questioned the Reformation's answer to that said, if you give people that kind of assurance, how will you make them pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord? That's in the Bible. It's in Hebrews. Pursue holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. How can you, if, if you give them that assurance up front, what will motivate them? Won't they just get complacent in their sinful fantasies and affections and desires and drives? Don't you really need to drive them by insecurity and fear and threat or at least grudging duty and maybe even self-serving vanity? Paul addresses those issues well. In fact, while Galatians is certainly about the truth of justification through faith alone in Christ alone, it is also very much a letter about sanctification, about how the Holy Spirit makes us more like Jesus. And it really does explain how the two rightly fit together, these twin benefits, freedom from sin's guilt and condemnation, but also increasing freedom from sin's domination and control. And we need to hear both. So we'll be looking at both. Um, Luther, of course, addressed both in the early uh, 95 Theses 1, 2, and 3. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. We all know that one, pretty much. Number two, this word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, that is, confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. Some of you historical theologians know that one. Number three, Yet it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces various outward mortifications of the flesh. We need to change, but the question is how? Well, we're going to be looking at Galatians, as I said, these six times. I have kind of memorable topics for each. This one is thirsty for grace. This is diagnostic. And then we'll go on to unmasked by grace and embraced by grace and united by grace and transformed by grace. And then, maybe surprisingly, but this is where Paul goes at the end of the letter, burdened by grace. Burdened by grace. Bear one another's burden. So thirsty by grace. This is diagnostic. I'm going to be gleaning, as I mentioned, from various parts of Galatians, what Paul saw in the lives of the churches of Galatia, I believe this is, these are the churches planted on Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. There's a debate about where Galatia is and the dating of the letter, but uh, for our purposes, Antioch in Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe primarily, churches that he planted. Um, as he had heard that following on his heels and Barnabas's heels, Some others had come in claiming to profess that Jesus is Messiah, but also saying, Paul got you started in a good direction by calling you to trust in Jesus, you pagans, you Gentiles out of idolatrous, immoral backgrounds. That's good, but you need more. 
You need to adhere to the Torah that God gave to his ancient people when he took them out of Egyptian paganism and gathered them at Mount Sinai and taught them how to live a life in covenant with God. The rabbis counted 613 commandments beyond, I mean, that's 603 beyond the 10 that you think of. Quite a few commandments, starting with, of course, circumcision. Starting with submitting to that old covenant right administered to uh, infant males and older males if they came to conversion later on that marked them out. Uh, And then a commitment to keep all the commandments of God. And Paul sees in his children in the Lord symptoms that 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 teaching that was really throwing the weight of their hearts back on themselves and on their performance He sees that as a sign of profound spiritual dehydration that's showing itself in a variety of ways. It shows itself in the false teachers, and it shows itself in the Galatians, and it even shows himself at one point, has shown itself in another of Jesus' apostles. Symptoms of spiritual dehydration. Five, that's why I'm speaking so fast, because I want to get them all to you, okay? Five, pride, fear of man hypocrisy, competitive conflict, joyless slavery. Okay? Pride. Pride is the real motivation, Paul says, behind these Judaizing teachers who want to persuade these new Christians from pagan backgrounds, from Gentile backgrounds, that they need to submit to all the law. Paul says in 6.13, not even those who are circumcised obey the law, but they want you to be circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh, in their influence over you. Now, within Second Temple Judaism, there was some debate about whether a Gentile God-fearer who had not taken that step of receiving circumcision could possibly be forgiven for that. But it does seem that the consensus was, no, if you want to follow the God of Israel, circumcision is the starting point. If you don't go there, you can't really hope in a pleasing way to keep the other commandments of Torah. And, uh, and that apparently is the Judaizer's point of view. But Paul says that it's really not that they're con- so concerned about law keeping. It's that they want to boast that they have persuaded you to submit to circumcision. They're not consistent. Now that's number three, hypocrisy, but we'll come back to that in a minute. And Paul is alarmed because he sees the same symptom among the Galatians. Chapter 5, 25, 26. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. There's pride. Paul doesn't waste papyrus on giving warnings that don't need to be uttered. He knows that there's a danger of conceit, of pride, of competition. Once our basis for assurance that all is well between us and God, once that basis shifts from Jesus to our own performance, then when we're doing a little better than we have, or maybe when we're doing a little better than somebody else's, we're tempted to pride. Now, we don't boast, perhaps. We know that's not, you know, if you boast, then you lose your good reputation for humility. So you don't want to go there. But pride shows itself in other ways, you know, just wanting to be admired, wanting to be appreciated, even just deep in our hearts. 
So when you see symptoms of pride in your own heart, a sense of you're being a little better than someone else, or a sense of self-pity that others don't recognize how well you're doing, Dr. Paul says, remember this is diagnosis, Dr. Paul says, it's time to ask why you're not drinking more deeply of the grace of God in Christ. Fear of man, number two. Fear of man. At the end of the, the epistle, Paul unmasks another symptom that the Judaizers had. He said that they want to boast, but he also says those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. This is 6, 12, 13. Uh, trying to compel you to be circumcised, and the only reason is that they want to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now we gather from chapter 1, verse 10, that they were accusing Paul of trying to please people. And Paul says, if I were trying to please people, I wouldn't preach this gospel of Christ. And, by the way, he says at the end of 6, I bear the scars of Jesus. Uh, I've been persecuted. I'm not afraid of man. I want to serve Jesus above all. But, he says, these people are afraid that they're going to be ostracized by the wider Jewish community unless they press you to circumcision and total Torah keeping. You see, it's not just the Judaizers, though. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, Paul gives us a little window. We're going to come back to that scene in another one of these meditations. A little window on a confrontation that he had with Cephas, Simon Peter. He says, at Antioch, now this is Antioch in Syria. Keep all the Antioch straight, please. Uh, Before certain men came from James, Cephas, Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to pull away, to draw back, to separate himself from Gentile Christians at the dinner table because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Now, he's not afraid of their violent persecution. He's afraid of their disapproval. You can understand that. You go to Acts 10 and 11, you see that Peter ate with Cornelius and a whole bunch of uncircumcised Gentiles came back to Jerusalem, and immediately he was slammed with criticism for eating with people who have uncircumcision. So you can understand it, but Paul won't excuse it. Paul won't excuse this fear of man. Peter knew that God was not expecting him to keep a kosher kitchen or to keep the Gentiles away from his dinner table. People knew that in his heart of heart. God had shown him that so clearly. And yet he was afraid that fellow Christians who were more zealous for the Old Testament ceremonial law than they should have been by that point, at least for the Gentiles, that they would look down on him, fear of man. If you're afraid of what others think of you, that's a symptom. That's a symptom that you need to drink more deeply of the grace of God in the gospel. Three, hypocrisy. You heard it, actually, when Paul claimed that the Judaizers didn't keep the law, but they want to push the law. But, Peter, but Paul also says that Peter, in his fear of man, committed hypocrisy. He was pretending to believe something he didn't. That is, that the Gentiles needed to keep the whole law in order to be acceptable for fellowship with God and with himself. Peter didn't believe that. He was putting on an act. He was putting on a mask. Paul says even, even Barnabas was almost led astray, was led astray by that hypocrisy. Our insecure hearts always seek cover between an 
image of conscientious devotion and responsibility and patience and purity until we taste the full sweetness of the grace of the gospel. And it unmasks us. Two weeks from today, we'll talk about unmasking. The cross unmasks us and shows us, actually shows all the world who we really are, but also shows us God's amazing love. So when we're tempted to hide, if we're afraid of what others might discover, what we're like inside, or what their opinion might be, Dr. Paul says it's time to go back and drink deeply of the gospel. You're, you're thirsty. You're thirsty for grace. Four, competitive conflict. Put proud people, insecure people, fearful people all together, shake it up, and you've got nitroglycerin. One bump and the whole thing explodes. And that certainly is what seems to have happened at Galatians, in, in these churches of Galatia. Uh, surrounding the passage in chapter 5 where Paul contrasts the works of the flesh, which is not so much the works of the body, there are some of those, but mainly it's the work of a fallen human heart that is full of anger and rage and competition and argument, and the fruit of the Spirit, which draws us together, love, joy, peace. Surrounding those, you have these two amazing warnings. Paul says in 5.15, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you'll, or you'll be destroyed by one another. And then after the works of the flesh, fruit of the Spirit, contrast, he says, verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. So when we're locked in conflict with each other, when we're locked in competition with each other, it may well be a symptom of spiritual dehydration. You need to drink deeply of grace. Finally, joyless slavery. Paul uh, makes an interesting move at the beginning of chapter 4. He talks, he reminds the Galatians of their past when they were enslaved to idols, which he calls the elemental things, the elemental principles, the stoicheia of the world. And he says, you're not there any longer. But before he gets to that use of that particular Greek term, he is already in chapter 4, really flowing on from what we call chapter 3, talked about the experience of Israelites who were under the law as a custodian, as a well, Paul says, virtually a slave master. And there he calls the regulations of the law the stoicheia of the world. The commands of God's holy law, the idols that the pagans worship, both elements of the world that enslave. Now, not when the law is used rightly, but when the law is turned into a procedure for self-justification, which is twisting it completely away from God's purpose for the law, which is to diagnose our sin and drive us to Christ. But when it's used wrongly, it becomes just like any other religious system. And that enslaves. That robs people of their sense of joy and blessedness, which he also says in chapter 4, chapter 4 verse 15. What happened to your sense of God's blessing? Being our own savior is hard work. It saps our joy. Now we know better than to say that we're trying to be our own savior, but still, but still, self-reliance is the default setting of our hearts until we drink deeply of grace, deeply of grace. So that's what we need. When, when we have a sense of enslavement or loss of joy in the work, Paul says, 
you need to drink deeply. Pride, fear of man, hypocrisy, competition, joyless slavery. 20 years ago, actually to this semester, I escaped the academic dean's office, one of several attempted escapes. Don't tell Dr. Fesco. He loves it. We're glad he's there. Uh, but I was wrung out. I was just totally exhausted. You know, I, we just finished an accreditation cycle. Uh, I was sort of hampered by guilt on all sides, you know. I didn't do the accreditation stuff. The Lord was gracious, but I didn't do it as well as I should. I wasn't preparing for my teaching as well as I should. I wasn't doing much writing at all. Shame on me. Uh, and then there was the church. And by the way, I had a family. Just, ugh. I was, yes, mentally, physically exhausted, but I was also spiritually wrung out. And happily, I was also due for a study leave, so I spent some time in Galatians. Uh, and I will not say necessarily that of all the New Testament books, Galatians is my Jane Doreen McChesney. Like Luther said, Galatians was his Katie von Bora, but it's pretty special. And I spent a lot of time in Galatians. And I realized 10 years after that, what a near escape I'd had. Time Magazine, just quickly. I know I'm on, on time, but I've got to share this with you. 2007, 10 years ago, cover story of Time Magazine, The Secret Life of Mother Teresa. You may or may not have seen that issue. But in, at that time, September 3rd, 2007, a collection of Mother Teresa's letters had just been published, uh, edited and published. And the subtitle of Time's article was The Secret Life of Mother Teresa, Her Agony. The letters record how again and again she expressed to her confessors and other spiritual advisors over 50 years from the founding of the Missionaries of Charity in Calcutta until her death that she had no sense of the presence or the favor of God, except for a few weeks in 1958 after she had prayed to the recently deceased Pope Pius XII. In a letter after letter, this is time quoting now, summarizing, and they did quote, she bemoans the dryness, darkness, loneliness, torture she was undergoing. She compares the experience to hell and at one point says it has driven her to doubt the existence of heaven and even of God. She referred to Jesus as the absent one. How I wish some confessor had spoken to her of the grace of Christ, of the mercy of Christ. I don't know where your heart is today. Hope it's not there. Um, but maybe your own spiritual dehydration, not so desperate, but maybe your heart is still a bit parched and weary, even at the beginning of a semester. Or you have a friend who is going through that. So my prayer has been that these Tuesday meditations will enable you to taste again the cool refreshment of God's grace in Christ. The good news that actually set Luther free, among other things, it set Luther free when he was dying of thirst, spiritual thirst. It set Calvin's hearts on, heart on fire. It's the good news that will quench our heart's deepest thirst. Christ's grace, Jesus' blood and righteousness, unmasks us, we'll see that in two weeks, and embraces us, and unites us and transforms us, and then in a glad freedom, it burdens us for one another as well. May the Lord bless us as we ponder these things this semester. Let's pray.
Father, Father, your son taught us to call you Father. He addressed you as Abba, Father, as he looked full face in the horrific wrath and death that he would face the next day on our behalf. And so the spirit of your son teaches us, teaches us to call you Abba, Father, because of what you have done for us in Jesus and the freeness of your gift of grace bestowed on us as we drop our masks and simply trust you to keep your promises, to bind us to your son in all of his beauty and righteousness and to welcome us into your smile and your pleasure for Jesus' sake. Father, refresh us. We need it always. Refresh us through Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Copyright 2017, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.